Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Oh, the shark, baby. Has such teeth, dear, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, babe, and it keeps it uh, out of sight. You know when that shark bites. So, welcome everybody to another episode of Macklin's Take with me, Andy Clark, and Matt Macklin. With you as always. Hope everybody's well. Hope everybody's enjoying the bonus episodes that our producer Darren Reese has been bringing to us over the last few weeks. It's been good fun for us actually to listen back to them, to old conversations we've had with with people over the last year and a half that this has been going now, and just remind ourselves of of some of the subjects that we've that we've covered. And thanks for the feedback too to the podcast we put out last Tuesday about the super fight between Marvin Hagler and Sugar Ray Leonard with Brian Dugan, who's written a book on the subject. People seem to enjoy that. I think they like the, I think they like the kind of theme of it, the concept of it, of getting into the bones of a really big fight. So we've been talking about it, me and Matt, and we will do some more of those. Um, we just need to pick out the exact fights and find ourselves a willing expert on the subject because there are a few, there are a few in particular that we'd really like to to get into. So in the next few weeks, we'll, we'll be doing, we'll be looking to do some some more of those. I think, but not today. Oh no, not today, because today we've got an episode which is kind of been a long time in the making really, because I've been thirsting to do one uh, on the amateurs, a good old amateur chat for a while now. We talk about the amateurs a lot um, on Macklin's Take, quite a lot anyway. And, and the reason being that whenever you talk to a fighter about their amateur days, their their eyes just kind of light up. It always brings a smile to their face. Uh, ups, downs, highs, lows, of course, there are disappointments, but they all just really have fond memories of those days because back then it was still a sport, really. I think that's probably the reason. It was it was new, it was fresh, you're young, you're travelling the world. You're If you're a top international, you're travelling the world anyway. You're doing things you could probably never have, have imagined. And as I say, it, it was a sport at that point. Um, when you turn professional, it turns into a business and, and things change a bit. So when I saw on Twitter last week uh, that esteemed GB coach Paul Wormsley was, was hanging up the, the GB pads after 21 years as a top amateur international coach, I just thought, well, now is the time. Now absolutely is the time. Uh, so I dropped him a message to see if he was up for joining us, and he was, thankfully. Um, and it fits well this too, because in those 21 years, at the start of it, that coincided with with Matt being uh, an England boxer down at down at Crystal Palace, and we hear a lot about the the Crystal Palace days. Uh, you hear fighters talk about that. that. It's like um, it's like hearing them talk about Nam. You know, if you were if you're down at Crystal Palace and the Gulag in the trenches, you know that's that's where the real men did their work. These these Sheffield guys, they got no idea. You know, it's uh, they all tend to get a bit kind of weird about it to be honest but uh, we'll uh, 
<laughs> we'll, we'll discover whether there was any whether there was any real reason for that. Um, and then I just thought we may as well just broaden this out and um, invite somebody else on. So I asked Matt, "Who do you reckon?" And the chances of of the candidate having the surname Smith were pretty good. I think they they were always pretty good. So so Stephen Smith joined us as well, and, and Stephen's connected with with Paul through well in a number of different ways. The, the international amateur career, the the rotunda gym. Um, they're both from Liverpool, obviously, and, and Stephen made his, his name down at that that famous old place. So after this lengthy intro, three and a half minutes, that might be a record. Um, welcome, gents. Welcome, Paul, Stephen. Thank, thanks very much for, um, for for coming on and doing this. We'll uh, we'll just see where the conversation goes. Uh, but Paul, first of all, I'm always curious when a when a chapter comes to an end in anybody's sporting career, professional career. What, what the feeling's like, because all chapters come to an end at some point. We all move on and do different things. And some people look back and some people don't really. But does it feel a bit odd? Yeah, it feels strange. I mean, it, 21 years international boxing, the last almost 11 years spent up at Sheffield. It's It just used to be in a way, Monday to Thursday minimum. Maybe more you go to international tournaments. So being home all the time is really, really strange. I can imagine. I can absolutely imagine. Um so let's let's just go round and you 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 tell us all you three how you how you know each other, where you first met each other. So so Matt, you start. Where did you first come across Paul and where did you first come across Stephen? Because I know there's this this is a tangled web, this one between the three of you. Well, well, I've known I've known Stephen a long, long time. I boxed in uh, 1998. Me and Paul Smith, Paul Paul Stevens, obviously older brother, uh, boxed together for England schoolboys in South Africa, and we uh, we befriended each other on the first squad that we met on. It was you know, like two peas in a pod. We just uh, clicked, and uh, like I say, we became close friends. We come back from South Africa. I went up to Liverpool for a week after it. Like I say, really, we really hit it off. Got on so well. And, and always stayed in, in regular touch. Then, of course, uh, Stephen came on the scene as well. He was a, a unbelievable schoolboy, um, and you know, I followed Paul's career. I followed Stephen's, Liam's, all of them. You know, the whole family became good friends of mine. Um, but I mean, when we when we spoke about this the other day, you were, you mentioned about getting Paul. I said, yeah, I know Paul well. I said because obviously I was close to the Rotunda gym in the sense that I was so close friends with Paul and would meet along the way through the championships. And I actually even spent a week up in Liverpool training for an international tournament, which was like mid-August. So most gyms were on the off-season. So me and Paul, you know, I was 71 kilos, Paul was 67. So we'd spar and I trained at the Rotunda. I knew Paul, so I know Paul well, I know Jimmy Albertine, I know, I know all the lads at the Rotunda. Um, and like I said, Stephen, then being Paul's, you know, younger brother, I just followed his career all the way through. And, and, and actually Stephen ended up having a couple of fights with uh, Frankie Gavin, who at the time when he boxed Stephen was boxing for Small Heath. So it was just like the amount of, you know, links were just, were just unbelievable, really. But when you, when you said about getting Paul on, I said, listen, the perfect person to get on with Paul is Stephen because all the Smiths have done brilliantly in boxing. But in terms of, as an international, Stephen definitely, I think, had the most decorated... Uh, career and you know should have gone to the Olympics as well so you know Stephen I know I've known since he was boxing I've known the family you know 20 odd years um Paul 
I've known a long, long time. Like I say, I think I think even before the Crystal Palace days, probably back to the the schoolboy days, boxing for England, and uh, you know, along the schoolboy championships, you uh, you meet along the way in the quarters or the semi-finals, etc. So, Stephen, how about you? When did you first when did you first bump into or, or meet uh, Paul? Um, obviously, first it was starting the gym. Um, Paul first went to the, like my brother Paul went to the Rotunda. I must have been nine or ten. I was about seven or eight, so I was like any younger brother following, following him around. And uh, I went in the gym, and I was I was too young. I started like kept trying to go back and seeing if I could get to start. And when I started, obviously you know Paul was one of the coaches. Paul was the on the first face you'd see when you'd walk in, and um, I'd go in and he, he, he'd obviously from a kid walking in the four of us. Couldn't hold our hands up, didn't know what we were doing, and taught us the absolute basics from from day one. And then right through me, obviously my career. I've, I've seen the other day, and people all writing little messages to Paul. And I said, I remember him being in, in me uh, in me corner in the schoolboy final, and obviously I come back to the corner. I was like, I've a one of a one, and he was just dead straight. Paul, and he said, Don't ask me no questions, lad. I'll tell you no lies. And I was dying for to tell me whether I'd won or not. Know what I mean? And I laugh about it now because he was in my corner, my Krovi amateur highlight was winning the Commonwealth Games gold medal and he was in the corner in the final there. So, you know, I've had a long and long and successful career with Paul and I've got so much respect for him. I've known him since as I say I was a baby and right through to, 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 to a man now. He's still a very close family friend. He's uh, he's always invited to all our family parties and stuff and he's always there with his lovely wife Jane, you know, very lovely people. So Paul, what what are your first memories of uh uh, of, of meeting these two? Well, Matty, obviously down at Crystal Palace with the young England squad, up-and-coming boxer, went on to do brilliant things. Um, the other lunatic there, what he failed to say is that when he used to come in to watch Paul, he'd be running around the gym causing havoc, climbing up the ropes, <laughs> causing murder. And as usual, he'd get away with it all because... It, it's, it's his nickname Swifty. It's to do with his fleet of feet or not? It's to do with the minute he causes trouble, he's gone. He's like Speedy Gonzalez. He's away from the trouble. That was my first memories of him. Absolutely, let's say. Brilliant career. Great, great all the time to me. So that, as he says the family zoos and that. Brilliant to keep in touch with a brilliant family. And the career he's had from, you knew there was something special about the, the lot of them when he first came in the gym. Absolute shone. And it's brilliant to have sat back and been part of the career at an early stage. But great to have seen them gone on to bigger and better things. That's a really handy skill to have to anticipate problems that you've caused and then have it away on your toes before the consequences kick in. Take no promises to the Swifty. Swift in getting away from any of the trouble. So just 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 take us a bit further back than that. So with your your own coaching career, where did it where did it all start and how long was the road to becoming an international amateur coach? Hey everybody, sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? 
Yes. It's called The Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! Um, it all began back when we finished boxing. Me and John Ford at Lee Jones's in Liverpool. I coached them with Georgie Bone. And he said, rather than just leave the sport, why don't you give me a hand on the coaching side of it? You know, just basic little things with the, the new starts, the kids. Um, so we started doing that. And I was at sea for a bit. So I was flitting in and out a bit. But come back really to the under the age of 21 20 and just kept plugging along next minute Georgie said why don't we go on to the assistant coaches course and I went oh brilliant at the time I thought it was like the biggest exam in the world you know it was just something like a recognition of the work you put in that you'd achieved this assistant coaches course level and it was brilliant at the time but it was just a question then of building up. You, you get the bug, the coaching bug, and it was just on to the, the ABA course. Then I was nominated for the, the senior course and then the advanced, which is down at Crystal Palace, which is basically international boxing, the advanced course. So let's 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 talk Crystal Palace because this is where the overlap begins between between uh, between yourself and, and and Matt and I joked about it at the start there but it is it is I do think there is a kind of there's a bit of a bond between the Crystal Palace graduates because they'll all talk about particularly the ones coming from out of London about what a trek it was to get down there uh, the route they need to take through London it's not an easy place to get to I remember one of the first one of one of my first jobs God. 18, 19 years ago when I was a reporter was was to go to Selhurst Park um, and I mistakenly got off at Crystal Palace which actually isn't that isn't that near the football ground and and got completely lost so I know that it can be fairly impenetrable but um, yeah they, they don't paint a particularly glamorous or flattering picture of it to be honest is it was it as bad as as um, as, as Matt and Paul and uh, and Bell you and others make out I think for the Northerners it, it could be bad because you went down on a Friday night Train Friday, train Saturday, went home Sunday. But obviously the, the transport, the trains getting home on a Sunday could be horrific. It, it took me nine hours to get home on one Sunday. So I think that was the big drawback to it. But once you were there, it was a bit basic. The rooms, the food was off the scale. It was beautiful. All the training facilities you wanted, SNC, Athletics track, everything was all all on your doorstep. So, Matt, f- fill us in. What was it like from a what was it like from a fighter's point of view? Yeah, I mean, it, it was all right. Do you know what I mean? The gym, it was it was basic. Do you know, it was dated. You know, it was an old place. You got look, GB now, it's state of the art, isn't it? But you know, when was Crystal Palace built? A long time ago. So we're going down there. You know, kind of late early not late nineties, early two thousands. It's it's it's. You know, it is, it's definitely dated. I think that, I mean, that's a nice way to put it. Uh, I think everyone talks about the lodge because the, the digs where you stayed, it was like a, like a prison barracks. You had this mad kind of going, it was like, a, you know, like a spiral, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 
you know. But it was just, it was just grim. Do you know what I mean? There was like these, I don't know, like prison bunkers or something. It was, it weren't the best. The accommodation was, but the food was absolutely pucker, which I, I don't know if that's a positive or a negative because if you're down there and you're struggling to make weight, it was like just like you're being teased. But no, I had some great days at Crystal Palace, really did. And yeah, and as Paul said, actually, the travel, you know, you're coming down on a Friday, you know, morning, lunchtime, whatever. You're traveling across London then, Friday rush hour traffic. You're getting a train from Birmingham or Liverpool or wherever down to Euston. Then you're getting the the, the, the uh, tube, the underground, the Victoria Line to Victoria Station. Then you're getting the overground to Crystal Palace. And then, we, but this is the thing, then you get to Crystal Palace and to walk from the train station to the lodge, it was like, it was a mission. Big like, bag on your back. It felt like it was a mile. It must have been a half a mile. At least it was a train. We were doing that on the way back on the Sunday. You had all your kicks and it was all sweaty and stinky and heavy. And you're stiff as fuck all over and you got blisters. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> them as well. If you finished on a high and sparred well on the Sunday and your weight was down, you might have been chubbed. If you got pinged, you were devastated. <laughs> it was a long way back, wasn't it? <laughs> Stephen, you're laughing away there. I mean, you you um you were on the amateur setup uh, longer than Matt because he took you know he turned pro young and you're a bit younger anyway. So, but but Chris, it was Crystal Palace at the start for you as well, was it? Yeah, and I was the, there quite a bit. Yeah, Crystal Crystal Palace and exactly that. You sort of had to do it to know exactly what he means. That walk to the station and obviously to the lodge from the station. Know what your big bag on bag on your back. It was a nightmare some days, and as he said, when you'd leave on the Sunday, if you'd had a good spa and your weight was well and you were happy leaving, you'd bomb at the station. If you just being snotters in the spa, though, it was a terrible walk. No wheels uh, on your case, then was it? Yeah, there? no, not at that point. It was all on your back, wasn't it? No wheels on your case. So, in terms of your uh, in, in terms of your your international amateur careers, all all three of you really, because as I say. The, the neat kind of symmetry of this is that they all started around about the same time. What was the first, what was the first really big trip that you had? Paul, you first, what was the first really big trip that you had where, where you thought, you know, this is, this is it now. I am an international amateur coach now. This is, this is the sharp end. Um, I think mine must be 2001, the world championships in Belfast. We had the likes of David A and all that crowd. Yeah, it was like, to me, it was like going to the Olympics. It was just massive compared to what you're used to, you know, like club level, going around the country at boxing in the championships. The, the Wales, it was such an amazing setup. And it was in the, the ice and the Odyssey Arena in Belfast. Absolutely amazing. Brilliant to be there. Great experience. So that was that was my baptism into the the big time boxing of your life. So you you had um, on the, on that team you had Hay and Froch, didn't you? Who both who both medalled. I think Hay got a silver, Froch got a bronze, didn't he? And it's early in an Olympic cycle because obviously two thousand had just happened, and uh, and Athens is still three years away. Did you did you think those two would hang on for that, or did you know that they wouldn't? Um, were you surprised that they went on and did what they did? Were they always that special? Yeah, I think there was always something special about them. I mean, both of them come bang, really big hitters. Um, I think that was England's elite then. But I think if the GB system had been set up at the time, I couldn't really see them turning over. 
too quick. I think they would have went on to bigger and better things in the amateur world. But it was just unfortunate, you know, that it was five years before GB was set up. I think we would have, the, the quality that was in the, the team then, I think we would have maintained all, if not most of them. But, you know, for the GBs, with a view to the Olympics, but money never comes soon enough. I think Fratch went at the right time, you know, after Belfast. Because I, I remember I won the ABAs in 2001, senior, I was 18, and I, and I was meant to go to Belfast, but I hurt my hand in the final. Uh, and the guy <laughs> I beat in the semi-final was Tony Sesse, and he had been the number Tony. one I beat him. So he ended up going to Belfast instead of me. At, uh, at welterweight, 67 kilo. But I think, I remember when Carl came back from there through the summer then, me and Carl met with Robert and uh, we were both going to sign with Hennessy. Anyway, I ended up signing with Frank Warren. But Carl at that time would have been, I think he definitely, would, yeah, he would have been 24, I think. So I think, you know, really for him to wait any longer, you know, he might have ended up staying amateur altogether then. So I think, I think for him it was, was the right time, but I remember I remember Belfast because uh, in the Four Nations after the ABAs, they were in the St George's Hall in Liverpool, and uh, again I didn't box in that because it hurt me hand in the ABA final. Obviously, I didn't box in the Four Nations, and uh, Tony Sesse went in instead of me, and he got beat ten nine in the final with James Moore from Ireland. That but James he put James Moore over. I don't even remember this Paul, but yeah. uh, he went then to Belfast. Uh, I think Colin McNeil beat him. In Belfast, but uh, yeah, and I think I think at that time it was it was probably the uh, the right move for Carl to go after Belfast because, like I say, he was twenty four years old. He won Olympic bronze. You know, Olympics were two years away. And back, don't, don't forget them times. It was a lot. I think anyway, it was a lot harder to qualify when you were boxing in those tournaments abroad against those East Europeans, and it was all just sticking together, weren't they? I mean, remember that fight oh. they had abroad where it basically completely snotted this. Estonian or something and he got beat 12-1 it was like unbelievable same with Carl Frotch you know what I mean they were winning fights hands down and they weren't even getting close to beating their opponents it was it was a bit chaotic back then wasn't it not half well it's interesting you mentioned you mentioned that fight the Frotch had because he he spoke to us about that when we had him on the podcast and he said that it was a real lesson that he boxed he he stood off and and Boxed in an amateur style, as, as everybody did. Got behind his jab, felt he'd won the, the fight comfortably. Didn't get the decision. And after that, his mindset just changed. He said, right, that will never happen again. And he just approached it in a different in a different way. Um, the vagaries of decision-making in the amateurs is, is something we'll get onto in a, in, a, in a little while. But Stephen, you came along a little bit later on. You'd have seen your brother get a medal at the Commonwealth in 2002. Uh, and you've been all over. I mean... We were talking to your brother about this. We were talking to Frankie Gavin about it as well. And he was saying that the pair of you at one point kind of just almost just just looked at the index in an atlas and picked out how many places you've been to through boxing. And it's a lot. So what was what, what really stands out for you? Um, to be honest with you, my first time I ever realised it was serious when I boxed for like England schoolboys. My first trip with England schoolboys was like in Russia. So... When I was boxing in Russia as a, as a kid, I think it was like my 13th birthday. I think I remember realising then, I'm going, this is like, it is something serious for me. But, um, as you said, I've done a lot of trips for like, when I, when I was like young England and stuff, and 
always enjoyed it and knew it was serious. But the, the, the highlight for me will always be the, the Commonwealth Games, with it being in Melbourne as well. It was an unbelievable trip. It was a great place to go, great place to visit. And it was just a, an all-round experience, one way, even more so the, the multi-sport event. So sitting in like the, the, the dinner hall and obviously you're watching weight and you're sitting next to like a shop button. He's got three trays of food and you're just looking at him like jealous, you know what I mean? But seeing the different sports and how they make up like and again people don't realize but it was like a new housing estate where we were staying and you've got like weightlifters on the ground floor in your house and again they're just eating what they want and you're lying in bed starving knowing you've been skipping weight off and stuff and it's good to be in, a, in an environment like that and mix around the other sports and you know, see how they prefer, prepare and and to experience it all those multi-sport events, as you say, Olympics, Commonwealth Games, that I guess that's an altogether different kind of experience to to going to the to the boxing events. Um, I've been to a couple of world championships and a couple of European championships, and they are they're amazing because the the standard of boxing you see is is just right up there. It's I mean it's off the scale. It's like it's like you know it's the best I've seen probably for pure consistency. Um, but they, I mean, they do feel like. To me, anyway, they do. They did always feel like harsh environments. I mean, you'd see that the the national teams around, and a lot of them are very stern. You know, the Cubans just so poker faced. Their, their expressions just never ever seem to change. You'd see the Eastern European countries who I do think made a bit of a thing out of out of being as stern as they as they possibly could. But they, I mean, they are really, really hard competitions to, to meddle in as well. I mean, we found the world championships harder to meddle in than the, than the Olympic games. I mean, Paul, why do you, do you get what I'm saying there about those, about those, about those particular tournaments? Because they are, I mean, it's serious, serious business. And you just, you, you, it just, it exudes that as soon as you walk into the arena. Definitely. I mean, talking about the Eastern Europeans, I mean, their culture, their way of life is a lot harsher than our lads. And would say to them time and time again, you know, they are allowed to be sitting there with the latest phone, the latest this, that, and the other. And that these kids would be looking at them like in the changing rooms, mesmerised by the, the technology they've got and the trainees to wear them, everything. Their old culture, it was like dog eat dog. And it, they carried that on through the training and into the tournaments. You see them fighting. It was like the life depended on it. Just tough, tough people. Most of them living tough, tough lives, you know, in a tough environments. And that sometimes it was hard to get our lads to, like, realise who they were going up against, you know. You're going in with these animals, a different mindset to you. You've got to match them. We're trying to motivate them during training. Be prepared for what you're going in for. And some of them did, some of them didn't, but tough, tough people. Yeah, do you know what? I, you're right, Paul. I mean, and I remember when, um, you know, the first big thing, big trip I went away to was South Africa. Like I say, when I was 16, I was England schoolboy captain and Paul was with me on that team. And I remember that, you know, obviously massive poverty over there, which was an eye-opener. But I remember when the, the international tournament became a bit more regular. Me and Paul, again, we went to Sardinia for Young England back in 2000. Went to Hungary then a couple of times after that. Ended up going to the World Juniors in Budapest as well. And I remember, like you say, some of the countries there, you know, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Romania, some of the Russians, you knew they had nothing. 
Do you know what I mean? They had nothing. And uh, I, but but I, but I remember as well that the, the coaching was. Um, you, I suppose what I'm trying to point out, what I'm trying to make is, if you look at that the era and Stevens was probably that kind of group, that kind of transition from Crystal Palace to Sheffield. It went a lot more professional in terms of the coaching setup and everything, didn't it? In, yeah. in the Sheffield full time, yeah. And yeah. I don't think any coincidence that England, you know, the GB, in terms of success, medals at these major tournaments, has really kicked on. Yeah, Stephen, you you bridged that gap. Does that, you know, how how was it being on the kind of front line of that change? How much did you how much did you notice the the difference. Uh, definitely, like as Matt just touched on, it, it sort of went so much more professional. It went from like it was a weekend a month or every other weekend in the month going down doing a weekend in Crystal Palace. So all of a sudden, every week, Monday to Thursday, basically living in Sheffield and you know full time coaches working with you full time. You know you talk four times a day training and stuff, and it was it was the same setup, the same coaches. So so. It wasn't like working on one thing one weekend at Crystal Palace and then you might not see that coach again for three months, be a different coach. It was the same group of coaches, as I say, really professional stuff on you all the time. And like you couldn't get away with not and it, it become your life then, do you know what I mean? It, it, was, it was a proper setup. Was that the point at which, Paul, you you thought to yourself, look, OK, we can really, you know, we've always had ability, we've always had good fighters, but we can really compete now because... As Stephen said, you've got you know you've got more time with the fighters. They've got more consistency. They've got more regularity because you mentioned the setup there with 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 let's just say Russia for example, but it'd be the same for Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan. Same with Cuba as well, actually. In that they would be taken at a young age um, and basically put in the sports academy and essentially be professional athletes, really. Um, and when Sheffield came around, that w- that was how we had it. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Noko Moto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Noko Moto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. Yeah, a million percent. I mean, like the lads who says, you go down a Friday. Saying Saturday, come on Sunday. The, the likes of the Kazakh suspects, Cuba, a lot of them countries, they had these academies where, as you say, the, the kids were just basically full-time athletes. They, they lived in the academy, trained in the academy, studies in the academy, and went home like every couple of months or something. Seen, I've seen a few in Kazakhstan and that myself, and it's they were Spartan, really Spartan places, which toughen them up, you know, going on about what we were saying earlier on. But when this lottery money come along, it gave us the chance to keep a, a team in, a squad in, and train them almost every day of the week. You know, train the camps as well as what was in Sheffield. And plus, the added bonus to that as well is that we no longer just had coaches and a physio. We had coaches, physiotherapists, psychologists, nutritionalists, Harley Street specialist doctors, 
a, a whole team built around them, performance analysis people. It just went from being like a Monday to Friday job, as Stephen said, once a month, to this intense programme. It was unbelievable. And that, that, that changed your career I'd imagine that changed your life and 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 for the, the same for the other coaches too because all of a sudden this is a much more kind of all-encompassing thing which which would have been amazing I'm, I'm sure but it brings you know it brings money and, and greater scrutiny brings greater pressure to deliver yeah but that's right I mean it's million percent it was loads of money you were there full-time like Monday Thursday minimum as I say but then, because you're under the, the spotlight, you need to perform as a coach. And so the, each department is scrutinised as well. The performance analysis, the nutritionist, everyone's under the spotlight. So you, you had to perform. And it wasn't sort of like, oh, damn, I can't be, really be asked today. You better be asked because you're getting paid for this. You know, it's a full-time job and you better be doing the best you can. So Matt, were you? Did you kind of keep an eye on these these changes and 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 think just you know would, was there a part of you that that wished it had been like been like that when 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 you were on on the on the program? Would it have kept you amateur? Do you think if it had been like that because you did turn pro young? I don't know. I mean, sometimes you know it was one of those for me. I was at that point where I didn't really think I was going to turn pro. I kind of had my my heart set on the Olympics two thousand and four because I would only have been you know, 22 then, it would have been a good time really to turn professional. But um, I had a big year in 2001. Like I said, I'd won the ABAs and, I, and, I'd, and I'd looked the part winning them as well. I'd won them in style and I'd then I'd missed that in Belfast, but I'd gone to the Acropolis Cup and I won a silver medal there, lost to the number one in the world uh, by a couple of points. So, you know, I, I, I was basically establishing myself even within the senior ranks then. I, I had my kind of next three fights mapped out. I was going to box against America. Uh, I was going to go to the Tama tournament and I was going to go to the Phoenix Stam tournament. But then obviously the offers came in professional and that was always ultimately my end goal was to turn professional. Um, yeah, it just changed my shift. I don't know. Yeah, I just had a shift in, in, uh, in perspective maybe. I was down then thinking, well, you know, a good deal here. Maybe, maybe I'm... Do you know what it was? I think if it was now... And they had the setup there now the way it is, and it's three three minute rounds and WSB and everything. I think I would have stayed amateur, but I, I was. I remember speaking with Robert, and he said, "Look, I said, well, can I stay amateur with boxing world class opponents? You know, if I turn pro, you know, my first year of that, there'll be a lot of journey." And he said, "Look, if you stay amateur, boxing four twos with computer scoring, you're going to become a better amateur, but you won't. Be, you, you know what I mean? Because at that time." It wasn't, in some ways, it was moving away from being a good apprenticeship for pro boxing because of the four twos and the, and, and the computer scoring. But, I mean, it, eventually the, the best generally became the best anyway. But, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the same as three threes as it is now. I think if it was the three threes back then, because um, I, I was very indecisive for, for weeks on end about turning pro or should I not, or should I go with Hennessy, should I go with Frank, should I just stay amateur? I was really indecisive. Um, couldn't sleep to be honest I remember it was horrible a couple of weeks but it was um, so, you know I was scared of making the wrong decision um, but I think in uh, if it had been if it had been the set up full time the way it is now at Sheffield you know Monday to Thursday um, I think I probably would have stayed amateur 
definitely. I, I, I'd say 99% I would have stayed down because I, I was very uh, indecisive about turning professional in the first place anyway. Um, you know, so I think if, if there had been more of a professional setup the way it is now, I think I would have uh, definitely stayed for at least at least another uh, year or two anyway and, and just seen, seen where it took me. But um, like I say, the Crystal Palace days were were different, weren't they? Like you say, Stephen, we, we, we get down on a Friday night, you get there, you do a session, you're in bed, you're up. You usually don't sleep well the first night because the beds are <laughs> shit. You know what I mean? And then you were that tired the right. second. Not because the beds were any better, but then we just you were that exhausted by the Saturday night you'd sleep. And then, you know, you're getting up Sunday, you do that once, you run in the morning, you train again a couple of hours later, and you're going back. So, you know, in terms of the professionalism, worlds apart, really, in terms of the Crystal Palace days uh, and, and the GB. And, and listen, Stephen can vouch for that better than I can because he 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 did, he did both. Um, oh, by the way, Stephen, <laughs> when Stephen was a schoolboy, I just want to put this out there, Randy, because you would be aware of this, maybe not, but he was the absolute golden boy of English boxing when he was, <laughs> he was unbelievable. And uh, all the Rotunda coaches were very proud of him and couldn't stop. Jimmy Albertino loved him and all he did was rave about him. He said, wait till you see this kid I've got. You know, he's someone else, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, you've done unbelievable, didn't you, Steve? To be fair. Yeah, goes to school, but I think, uh, I think I just took to it quick because we're having the elder brother obviously coming home and he'd be like, look what we've done today, Dad. And he'd be like, standing me there. I was like the punch bag, showing me what to do. And then, Obviously, we had Liam and Callum coming along behind us, so we was always sparring and doing bits in the house anyway. So by the time I got to the Tundra, I had the likes of you know, Paul and Jimmy Albo saying, we've done this before, lad, no winking each other, winding me up. And I thought it was the bee's knees there, you know what I mean? Because these were asking me, oh, he's done this before. I thought, oh, yeah, they must see that. I'm all right, you know what I mean? It gave me loads of confidence. They just knew how to handle the kids, I think. We were lying. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to tell a funny story here, and this is just off the subject. But just, just looking at Stephen here, I ain't seen him for a while, and I'm looking at. And I don't know if you've seen my brother Seamus Andy, but he's an absolute ringer for Stephen Smith yeah, all the time. So the one time we were in Sheffield, and it was um, Josh Warrington was boxing. It was a match. It was, uh, it was when he was with Matchroom, but before he left and went with Frank Warren, you know, now he's back in Matchroom. But in, you know, I'll go back a good few years. I think he might have been European champion or something, and. Uh, Anyway, uh, I'm backstage. I was looking for Eddie or someone. And uh, John Wish went to pay Seamus. <laughs> Stephen boxed <laughs> up in the car. And John Wish was starting to pay Seamus. And Seamus was going, John, what are you doing? And he's going, paying for your fight. He goes, no, 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 I'm Seamus. <laughs> I thought you were Stephen Smith. <laughs> he just took the dirty box for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there is there is there is a very there is a very strong likeness um and Paul has always been you know since, since you were over the last 20 years there's always been a strong Liverpool presence hasn't there on the on the international squads because you've got the Smiths um and a lot came through the Rotunda there was there was Beaulieu as well and you, you look at I'm going to miss names out here so apologies to anybody whose name I miss but you, you look at people who who meddled outside of, of Stephen uh, and Paul and, 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 and Callum in tournaments as, as well. Neil Perkins, he got a medal in 2007, didn't he, at the, at the World Championships. Stalker went on and got a lot of medals. Peter McGrail's done really, really well. Uh, Fowler, um, he got a World Championship bronze. David Price got a, got a bronze in 2008. As I say, I'm missing people, but there was just a constant, steady conveyor belt of, uh, 
at Liverpool Fighters, which was, I mean, that's 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 not necessarily an easy one when 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 you're a coach because you, the last thing you want to be seen to do is 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 kind of favour your hometown, but at the same time, it must have been yeah, it must have been it must have made you proud that so many Liverpool Fighters came through. Yeah, it was great to see that the Liverpool lads coming through, but as the lads will back me up on it. Once the, the lads are down there, they're a team, and no matter where they're from, they just yell and back one another up. They are a team, but it's it is it does give you a little glow when you see the Liverpool lads, you know, especially lads from your own club like Stephen, Paul, a few others. It, it is it uh, just make you feel proud. So when when the when that transition was made. Well, what were the early days like up there? Because I've been up there a few times and obviously it's kind of changed over the years and, and, and evolved, but it's not an easy thing when a programme gets given money and the potential to really expand. I mean, how how did it happen? Were, were you all consulted as to how best to do it? Because it's when you get the funds, it's a big responsibility to make sure that they're that they're spent wisely. Yeah, I mean, from the coaching point of view, I, I think was, we just really evolved from the Crystal Palace days, but the, the old programme is backed by UK Sport, and they, they advise the programme, what they need, like physiologists, nutritionists. So all that goes on in the background, but the coaching part of it, we just evolved from... As I say, the Crystal Palace days and developing, seeing the way international boxing was going and how we need to change, and how we need to change the training for the lads. But the other side of the sports science side, basically run by UK Sports. So when you look back at some of the at some of the the bigger nights, we'll get to London. We'll, we'll treat London as a, as a kind of separate entity because that was, that was absolutely huge, but you, you'd been coaching for, for, for a long time anyway. And, and you get used to the, you get used to the emotional demands of it because you want it really badly for every fighter that you've, that you've got in there. But when you go to these, these big, big tournaments, there's, there's more at stake. How did you find the, how did you find the highs and lows of it as a, as a coach? Because, it's always struck me that it's when you're a fighter, you're just you're just thinking about yourself, obviously. And and if if it doesn't go your way, then you're really really going to feel it. But if you've got a number of different fighters, all of whom you've got to give equal time and attention to, some will succeed, some won't. Some will be jubilant, some will be distraught. Um, how do you kind of how do you kind of manage that? It can be difficult, like because it, you've got maybe say four lads in a tournament that you're looking after and. One might go out to tournaments, out to competition, and you wear him sympathising. You you feel devastated yourself that he's lost. He's out to the competition. One of your other lads might have just won. He's through to the medal things. So it's, it's highs and lows. You're going from rock bottom to sky high. You know, maybe in the same day. It, it's it's just the nature of the beast. You, you've just got to pull your socks up again from a defeat go on to the next bout give that kid your all concentrate on that next opponent it is hard but it's just a roller coaster of emotions 
You've got to become good at blocking shit out, don't you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> deal with it. It's, if I'm if I've just lost a, a box set in one round and then I'm on again in two fights time with another lad, I, I can't be moping rounds and putting it like oh, you know we just got beat there and I'm, and I'm in the changing rooms with the next lad who's going in. That that's not fair to him. I need to right snap out of it. That's gone. I've got to do my best for this fox now. See what I mean? I've got to raise his spirits. I've got to be positive for him. I've got to get him teased up now. And it's just, it's hard sometimes because you're still inside, you're still gutted that the other lads just lost. What do you, you know, do? Do you just kind of blank it out for there and then, and then it kind of hits you later on then when you're kind of back in the hotel? Yeah, like the, the, it's when you get back to that hotel room and you, you switch the lights off and you're going through it all and... So you're thinking, oh, you know, absolutely gutted for Joey, for example. And then you're sick, you know, could have done better, could have done this, but, you know, did I do my best for the lad? And then this, two minutes later, you're thinking, yeah, but Tommy won this and blah, blah, blah. And that, that was brilliant. So it it literally is just a roller coaster of emotions. One minute you're down in the dumps through being beaten. Next minute, you think about the other kid who's just won and maybe he's qualified or just won a gold medal or whatever. And it, it brings you back up again. But it's it's just the nature of the beast, and you get used to it as a coach. And then you've got, I suppose, you've got to kind of put it all to the back of your mind then and you go yeah, to the final. But as I say, the worst is when it happens. So if you've got one on one day, then you get the day to get over it. And you get the, the next lad the next day, and it's a different day. We go again, you know, let's get up for this. But if the two of them or three of them or four, whatever, they're on on the same afternoon or something, you've just had a loss. And yet you've you've got to go on in two bouts time with another kid. That's when it's tough. But you, you've just got to put it to the back and do your, do your best for the next lad coming up. It was like that among the lads, though, as well, wasn't it, Stephen? You know, yeah. yeah. In a room together, you're traveling, you're mates, you're, you're getting the draw, you're saying, Oh, your, your box is such and such a one, and you can say, yeah. whatever, you know what I mean? And then, you know, some win, some lose, some are on cloud nine because the box is unbelievable, and they've got a medal and they're through to the next one. And then you got your mate who's devastated, he maybe back shy and he's gutted with himself, yeah. and got robbed. It's just, it, it is, it is mad, isn't it? Because this is yeah. all. You can have two lads in the same room, can't you? And yeah. once you're qualified, the other ones out the competition and it's hard for the, the boxers as well, you know, when they're in the room together. One wants to celebrate and tell the other one, oh, I'm, I'm true to the, you know, I've qualified for the Olympics or whatever. I'm, I've just won the gold medal. The other kid's just being beat and he went to, he's commiserating. It's tough, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, that, uh, my experience and that was was the, the 2007 world and in, the, in them in them majors, as you said, Matt, you can have it. You can have your mate on in the same ring, the same time as you. Do you know what I mean? It can be that hectic because there's obviously two rings of boxing going all day, every day. But in yeah. the 2007 Worlds, I was in a room with Frankie Gavin, and he, when I'd lost, I say Frankie, I think he had six fights to win them in in, in them Worlds, and he, I remember like obviously I'm out the tournament now. I'm like going to boxing. Going to meeting in the hotel, and I, and I didn't want to keep coming in and, and waking him up and stuff. Friends are going and getting in 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 payholes room. I think no, I don't want to be waking them up and, and affecting their sleep. And that's what I just told them. Look, I'll stay out of the room. I'll stay in payholes room. 
he'd gone out in it. So trying to like do my best for him and help him get get his sleep and stuff. But it it was the same thing. And I remember like I can't remember who it was at the time, but there was two lads on at the same time and, and like rings and stuff. And the amount of times that happened, and you're sitting there and one of the lads will go over and shout for him because one of us is shouting for him. In the majors, that goes on quite a lot, and it, it's worse obviously for the coaches because they've got to sort everything out and who's doing who's corner and everything. And and you wouldn't think, you wouldn't see this happen on the normal domestics so often, but then majors just that much boxing all the time, so you can be in the same ring different times. What's always struck me about those those tournaments too, from from a, an observer's point of view, is it it is very kind of cold and clinical because there are so many bouts, they move them along so quickly. You get a really, really good fight, a really close fight. Let's say it's a quarterfinal, so there's a medal at stake and, and further progression at stake. And one person's hand gets raised and then they're out of the ring and then within about 30 seconds, the next two fighters are in uh, and you're on your way back to the changing rooms and it's over. And it just, it just I mean, it's it's brutal. Uh, and, and we know that, that, this is the same in professional boxing too, and we know that decisions can be, can be hard to take. I mean, Paul, are, are there, does anything really, we'll, we'll come to highs, obviously, uh, but do any really kind of stand out for you? As you said, you, you can't afford to, to get too down, but I mean, you'd, you wouldn't be human if they didn't. Sometimes I remember talking to, to Lee Pullen a while ago um, and he said he found Joe Joyce's decision in the Rio Olympic final really hard to take. It got to him more than he, than he thought it would, and and just to, just to give an example because it's it's close to home. Um, Callum got an unbelievably bad decision in in the qualifier for for London twenty twelve, and and didn't make it as a as a result. I mean, what do you say, Paul? What do you what do you say when that when that happens? What do you say to your to your fighter? Is there anything you can say? It's I mean, just be honest as you should be with every boxer in every situation. I think. Um, like Callum's a prime example, as you said, but he, he also had the torture of not only getting robbed, but then the lads who beat him, allegedly, went on to, to box, I think it was, I thought it was the Tate, or I forget the, the bounce actually, but if these lads had been beaten, if I remember right, Callum would have qualified so we were all sitting in the audience watching this bout, praying for this kid to get beat. And Callum was sitting a couple of rows along from us. And it was just, Callum's a quiet lad anyway. He doesn't show a lot of emotion, but I was just watching him and I was going, please, God, just beat this kid, you know, so he's qualified. And it it never happened, but I thought, he's gone through this twice. The, the pain of being robbed and then the pain of watching this sort of bout where he would have qualified at the decision went the other way. And it was just heartbreaking. Especially, you know, you're so close to the kid anyway. Yeah. You know, you know, listening to Paul talk through that, and I was just thinking, he's taking me back. I was reminiscing, you know, even Steve, when you talk about the lads and that, some of the fights. And listen, the pro game is unbelievable. And I love it and where it took me and everything. And some of the highs are unbelievable. Of course they are. But, you know, if I'm honest, I think those those trips away on the Young England and even, you know, on the senior, because I, I went straight into that. But those those Young England days, let's say, I think they were my best days, you know, in the boxing. You, you know the camaraderie when you're on those trips? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, really are with each other, aren't you? Really rooting yeah. for each other big time, man. Every yeah, you, know, you never beat that. You the same. Yeah, you never beat that. 
Okay, so so on that note, what what would you say? This is not this is not an easy question to answer because you've all been to lots of different places, but but what would you say is doesn't have to be one, can be a couple. Is the most unexpected situation or location that you have found yourself in the, the kind of the kind of moment where you just look around and just and think to yourself, I just never, I just never thought that I would be in this situation or in this place. Macklin, you go first because, you know, this is good. <laughs> I mean, you've got loads of these, but it's just whether you're willing to tell them or not. Oh, you did tell us one when you, you, you told us one when Paul came on. Yeah, most of mine are boxing related. <laughs> uh, it might have started that way, but where it ended. Um, no, no, uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, I'll tell you what, something that just sprung to mind when you were kind of half going through it was I remember boxing the Acropolis Cup and I'm warming up and I feel like I've got ages to warm up. And the next thing, one of the one of the lads, it might have been um, Mark Moran, I think, who, who comes running in and going, Macklin, if you don't get to the ring quickly, they're going to disqualify you. The kid, it's going to be a walkover, the kids in the ring. They must have called me and none of us heard it or something. I've had to, so I'm literally sprinting to the ring. Bloody. <laughs> I haven't warmed up. You know, when I say I've warmed up before, I, I was just waiting around to warm up. I hadn't done the pads or anything like that. I hadn't even gloved up. Calvin Travis has run around to the ring, gloved me up, put my head guard on, and literally I've been tucked to the referee to touch gloves. I'm about to box. And the referee saying to me, take your time and warm into it. And, of course, me, set up like a lunatic. <laughs> no, so by the end of the first round, I reckon my heart rate must have been about 210. I was blowing out my ass. You know, because I have no. <laughs> I mean, I, went, I was literally 10 seconds away from being, it was being ruled a walkover to, you know, 30 seconds later, the first bell's going. It was just mad. I talk about not being prepared. So how about you, Stephen? Is, is there anything that you look back on that, that, that stands out for you in particular? Yeah, no, just a, a more of a surreal experience for me. I boxed in a, a, a Young England under-19 multi-nations in New Delhi. And... It was an outdoor, just like a ring set up in like a, a field or something it was. And it was just sort of the experience of being there. I remember like I boxed three times in three days, won a gold medal in. I remember getting out of the ring every time, running to like a, a proper old-fashioned phone box to phone my dad letting him know I was getting on. And I'd be on the phone going, Dad, Dad, I won. And he'd go, oh, when are you boxing? I'm boxing a, a, a lad from Korea tomorrow. And you'd say, bang, 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 bang. And he'd go, what's that? And i go, oh, like, there's a monkey on the roof. Like, monkeys in the street, elephants walking down the street, kids sitting on the on the, on the the floor with, with with snakes and that. And it was just unbelievable, like, eye-opening where, say, you're at home, England, you'd never see nothing like it. Like, just animals walking in the street and that, like, like it was just like it was normal over there, do you know what I mean? And, and also the poverty, you know, like seeing kids walking around the streets, like, pulling each other along and that, and, and, and like, proper eye opener for me but it made, really made me realise how lucky I was being here but also how bad some people have got it and you know just just a mad mad experience but, but a good one Paul you must have you must have an unbelievable number of, of stamps on your on your passport yeah yeah um, not so much place it, it was a t- well a time and a place that I remember going into the 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 Olympics with Josh Big Josh and getting the bus up to the venue and sitting down in the changing rooms and I just thought, 
like this seems surreal, really bizarre, you know. From the days of Georgie Vaughan asking us to give my hands with a couple of kids to now, this is the Olympic final, and it all seems so strange, so weird. But you know, brilliant journey, and that's my sort of like the only time I've ever felt like it was surreal. This is the Olympic final. It's the super heavyweights from all NJs back to Leeds Youngsters. Well, let's talk about London because it was, I mean, it was, it was absolutely huge. A home Olympics is, is always going to be that bit bigger. But what, what a lot of people who, if they didn't follow the amateurs particularly closely at the time, or if they weren't following boxing particularly closely at the time, what, what they wouldn't have known really is that there was a lot expected of that squad. There, there was a lot of pressure going into that Olympics, not just because it was in London, but because in the previous World Championships, uh, in Baku in 2011 with, with the men, um, Anthony, Luke Campbell, Andrew Selby had all got silvers and Stalker had got a bronze. And for the women earlier in Olympic year, Savannah Marshall got a gold and Nicola Adams got a silver and Tasha Jonas got a bronze. So and those were the three Olympic weight categories, obviously. So that, I mean, that's a that's a great haul in, in, as I said, a competition that is generally really rock hard to get medals in. So things were expected. Things were absolutely expected. million percent, yeah. It was a great squad. I mean, even if they hadn't achieved what they had achieved, hadn't achieved during the year, I think the pressure was still on them to perform, especially being at home base games as it was. And it was a vast amount of talent there amongst that squad. Maybe even could have done better than we, we did with the likes of Fred Evans getting silver, where he could have pushed for gold. But brilliant performances. Would you say that was that was the standout for you then, London? That that super heavyweight final in particular. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. Yeah, I mean, it's I'd love to ask like your son, know what I mean? And it's like you wanted him to win so much that, that you faced Olympics as well. So it means an awful, an awful lot. But uh, I thought he was going to have a heart attack waiting for that decision to be announced against Camarelli to count back. <laughs> oh, please don't do this. <laughs> I thought, yeah, it's going to burst out my chest. <laughs> and then when he get the decision, say, just went crazy. Never fell off the ring. Jumping up and down like a lunatic. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant day. Brilliant games. I mean, it was it was absolutely excruciating because it was it was that close. It was that close, and and it was a great haul. I mean, three gold medals, one silver, 
uh, one bronze from 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 Anthony a go go. But uh, with the ups, there were, there were always the downs, um, and we were talking about that just beforehand. And you know, Tom Stalker so close to to getting a medal that everybody I think would have loved to have seen him get. Tasha with that fight against Katie Taylor in the quarterfinals. It's it's I mean, yeah, it's brutal, isn't it? The the the, the, the fine dividing line. It's absolutely it's it's horrible. Yeah. The same like what we were saying earlier on about, you know, the highs and lows of the game. I've seen Stalker after he got robbed. Absolutely devastating. Just turns your stomach. The kid was in bits in the changing rooms and everything. And how do you console him? If it, if it had boxed and got beat fair and square, you know, you've got a case. But when you know they've been robbed, it, it just makes you, your job so much harder, you know, trying to console him. He was absolutely sobbing. You know, it's just be fair. Give these kids a chance. You know, the chance they deserve to change their lives, win an Olympic medal. Just turns your stomach. That some of the judging, absolutely outrageous. It's a roller coaster, and it is a, and a proper emotional roller coaster. That day when he got beat, that was just horrible. It sticks out in my mind. Stephen was unlucky as well. What, say, what happened with yeah, you? Yeah, the Olympics. Yeah, the Olympic yeah. I went to the, 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 the qualifiers, as I say. The first one was, was the Worlds, and I lost in the Worlds. Just my own fault. I, lo- I actually lost in the Worlds to a kid who had stopped before. But basically, it was just watching who I get the next round. So I got Selimov. Selimov had, had beat, um, beat me in the European semis beforehand. So I thought, what's the chance that I had in the draw? I've come out next to him. So I'm watching him in his first round. He's, he stops a Romanian. So uh, I'm like... Taking off warming up goes in and then just take me after the ball and lost to a kid who stopped before. So, you know, lesson learned, we'll do that again. Then I went to the, the next qualifier in uh, Pescara in Italy. So we uh, I beat I think a Latvian, then beat a, a Polish kid, beat David Oliver Joyce, gets the semis, and I've got a, a box in the semis. Oh, the, a French yeah. the Jelkier, the French kid. So uh, he ends up getting the, the silver, got the final, lost to Lomachenko in the final. So he uh, comes out first round, boxing, just moving. He's a pressure fighter. So I'm just trying to stay out of trouble and towards boxing well enough. Comes back the corner. And Teddy goes to me, you're not going to believe this. So I was like, what? I was going to say, I'm down. And he goes, it's 11 1. I went, what? It's 11 1. I was like, you're winding me up. I he was like joking. I don't, couldn't believe it. He was like, nah, look, get out. Get to me out of the ring. Because you can box tomorrow for the for the box off against the German kid. So gets in the next day, box this German kid. And I say, give it everything I had. I, I went out, thought I won the first round. Welcome back. He said, hey, you're too down. I was like, wow. So went out second round, goes for it, comes back, you're too down. I thought, oh my God. So the third round, I went out and I really goes for it. I gives him a standing count. And he got a, a public warning for Oldham, which adds two points on to me. So I thought, I'm definitely up now. Come back at the end of the turn. He said, you're one down. I was like, oh my God, goes for it and ends up, as I say, lost the fight. It just was never going to win it, do you know what I mean? But got out, it's just, just heartbroken. Mm. It's mad there, Paul, when you said that, uh, when Stephen, you said that fight, Paul knew it. Are there certain fights, Paul, that you yeah. remember more than others or, or do you remember them all? So you, you're doing a lot. It must be a lot to remember. Oh, that, do you know what I was thinking about all this today and you were thinking, like, you, you forget, you sort of like, you're only, 
remember it as a couple of years. And then when you start delving back, you think, remember that one? Remember this one? Remember that? I mean, it's 20-odd years, just international. And think how many bouts you're involved in or you see just in one tournament. You know, like the Worlds, for example. How many bouts is there in one World Championship? And it's sometimes you need a little prompt, especially at my age, you know. Do you remember? <laughs> oh, you know, yeah, yeah. I forgot about, you know, all, all, the, all the big ones stand out, obviously. But sometimes you get boxed out and you know the score yourselves. Being, being a tournament, you get boxed out after a couple of days, weeks, something at a tournament. See so many bouts. But the last three Olympics have been have been you know, successful, each one Each one of them, weren't they? Beijing was a good one to go with, with a gold. Um, David Price with a, with a bronze. Um, Tony Jeffries with a, with a bronze as well. And then Rio more recently, Joe Joyce with a silver, which nobody will ever convince me shouldn't have been a, a gold. Nicola Adams getting back-to-back golds, following up the gold in London and, and Joshua Boazzi with, with the bronze. I mean, it's, it's, before you go into them though, you do have, you do have targets essentially that you, that you have to meet if you want the funding to remain as it was. That that's that's the reality of it, isn't it? Yeah, UK Sport. Uh, they set the the targets. How many how many medals of any colour? You know, blah blah. London, I ever remember right? Was five, five. I think Tokyo was three. But it, that's. That's set by them, and your funding obviously reflects how well you do and how reaching that target or surpassing that target, how much money you're going to get for the next cycle. So it just creates its own pressure, like, but it's part of the game. So we won't keep you too much longer, but um, a question for you, which which you wouldn't have been able to answer when you were, were still a GB coach, but you could probably answer it now. Um, although you can diplomatically decline if you if you like, it's, it's entirely up to you. In all that time on the um, on the squad and as, a, uh, as an international amateur coach for England and, and for GB, men and women, who would you say is the best fighter you've coached? No comment. <laughs> uh, it, it's really hard to say because... It, there's been so much talent over the years, you know, right through England and GB, men and women, and some different styles, but it's really hard to say. I think we've got a decent squad now coming through. The likes of Peter McGrail is really entertaining to watch. The Scouts Lemitschenko, as they call him. I think he's really, really easy on the eye, pleasing on the eye. And he'd be, he'd be up there, one of me, all-time favourites. Well, I mean, one who always stands out for me because he's still the only British male, uh, English male, to win a, a world championship gold is, is is Frankie Gavin. And people more recently look at his pro career and they seem to decide that he didn't achieve as much as he should have done. Still did pretty well from where I'm sitting. But that, that goal in the world championships, and Stephen, you know, you know Frankie really, really well. Um, we went and sat down with him last year and... And it's just a bit of a curse of the World Championships is that they don't get anything like the same amount of attention as the Olympics. Uh, they don't get the same amount of attention as, as the Commonwealth Games. But that gold medal, winning a gold medal in that competition and the way that he did it, um, beating a fighter who hadn't lost for, I think, 
four years or so, something like that, Tishchenko. It was it was it was pretty extraordinary. And is is that? I mean, who stands up for you? For me, to be honest with you, I, I as far as I'm, I just go. I don't think I've seen anyone as good as Frankie Gavin on his day. Frankie Gavin on his day, especially you've got to remember at that time it was the four twos, computer score and very much fencing type of style of boxing, and Frankie with his feet was just gifted. He just different. He, 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 he'd win so many fights on not 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 a twenty point rule, the, the out, out RSCO rule. He he'd win fights twenty nil and just come back to the hotel room laughing about it. Or like it was normal to him. He just wouldn't get it. He'd win kids 20 nil, the whistle would go, the fight stopped, and he'd win. It was normal to him. And he just had that style of boxing off to a tee for me. And again, that then World Championships when he, he beat Tashenko, it was one of the best performances I've seen. When he beat him in the semis, he was he was really good, just on fire, sharp, and and would just again had that style of boxing off to a tee. And he, he was he, he, he was amateur boxing by watching him was just everything about it, was just it and not be it. He he, he was gifted. He was, for the best amateur I've ever been around being in the ring with us. I was a, a pleasure to spar with him a lot through through the camps and I felt like I learned I more through that in, in terms of amateur-wise than, than anyone. You know the squad training? You know the squad training is a big thing, like you, we said about the Sheffield and you know how it's, you know, the success that England have had winning medals since they've gone to that Monday to Thursday every single week, staying in that camp. It, it pays off. I mean... I remember Frankie going to his first squad at Crystal Palace. Every stayed at my house and I'd come down with the train. I mean, I was established at the top on the on the England team. I was, I think I was even senior, boxing senior at that time. And he really went from that time when he went on his first squad, he just went to another level. You know, and that was because really when he was up at Small Eve, no one was really trained. At that time anyway, there weren't much training. It was a rough and ready gym. You know, it was whatever. But when he went down to Crystal Palace and he got you know, the schooling, the technique, the pad work, the drills, sparring with other quality lads, even the mindset change being around other lads, champions. Frankie went to another level and that was because of the squad training, definitely. So who would you say, Paul, from the rest of the world, from everybody you've seen outside of GB fighters in that time, who who stands out for you? It doesn't have to be one, could be a few. Who would you say? From the rest of the world. I think Lemitschenko is one of the standout ones for me. Absolutely brilliant. Fantastic to watch. He's carried that, that style and that charisma through into the, the pros now. He's, he's just a joy to watch, isn't he? Absolute brilliant boxer. i got to agree with uh, Stephen as well, what he said that last thing about Frankie. Frankie's one of the most talented boxers I've ever, ever seen and worked with. Absolute joy to work with. So, Stephen, how about you internationally? Um, take Frankie out of the equation. Who was who was the best opponent you you actually you actually boxed? Do you reckon? Um, I said I fought some good kids myself. I fought Tashenko in in, in in Finland, the one who, who Frankie beat. He was a two-time Olympic gold medalist. He was probably on paper a good one, but um, I lost in the European semi to Albert Selma. The, the one he, he he then beat Lomachenko in the in that world finals. Um, he's got to be up there. You know, he, he was a really good fighter. Um, but the best I've seen, I said, didn't uh, I? Didn't get to share a ring with him. But when Paul was touching on Lomachenko, there he's one of two for me. I think 
him and Lemo Regonzo. Regonzo in them amateurs, the way he used to float around the ring and the things he could do to people was unbelievable. They were two, probably one and two for me, Lomachenko and, and uh, Regonzo. For me, are just like two people who, I think the records speak for themselves in the amateurs, the gold medals they won and the actual records they had, but they could do anything in that amateur boxing ring for me. Uh, I think you're right when you both of you when you when you say in terms of in Britain, Frankie Gavin, if you if you if you factor in the I know Amir Khan got the silver and the gal got the gold, but if you look at consistency, he was just yeah. winning gold medal after gold medal after gold medal, wasn't he? For yeah. fun. Yeah. You couldn't like yeah. say Neil. He, he was untouchable, wasn't he? At, at, yeah. the, at period yeah. there at his peak. He, he was untouchable. Yeah, more more so that 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 two thousand seven Worlds, he was just at his peak, his weight was done. He was he he he, he went out. I think that in the draw, he threw a kid from Barbados. Poor kid, just he lost twenty nil. Kid twenty nil them straight away. Then after I said whether he had seven fights, but it just didn't matter who he fought. So he, he fought to Shenko in the semis. Uh, Dominic Valentino in the final, not a good kid, but none of them could put a glove on him. He was just that good, just that gifted, just floated around the ring and just land a shot, throw a bolo in, straight left. Oh just move and just gone it and not be it he, he just added off to a tee well I'm absolutely with you on, on Regondo uh, he could possibly have won a, a, a third Olympic gold if he'd if he'd stayed amateur um, but um, he obviously decided to to turn professional What one of the best I've seen live from ringside because I never saw Lomachenko from ring, Lomachenko from ringside well, probably the best I think I've seen from ringside is is Rabesi Ramirez who won the gold at London and the gold at Rio and I was telling everybody how brilliant he was and then he turned pro and probably lost his first fight. So <laughs> and a lot of people turned around to me and asking me, you know, what, what, what I was on about. But um, Julio La Cruz as well is another one in, in, in recent years. But it's just the, the, the standard when you go to these tournaments and in World Series boxing as well, it's just, it's, it's, so, it's so high. It's no surprise now that, that amateurs, when they, when they turn pro, um, hit the ground running because they need to really. Otherwise they'll just... You know, they'll just get stuck in the mud. They'll just stagnate a bit, a bit too much. Um, so we'll we'll wrap it up there actually, because I don't want to take up your entire evening. Uh, but this has been this has been really good fun, really good fun, Paul. I know that you are not retiring. Um, I know that you are not um, leaving the boxing scene. Um, you are going to stay involved, aren't you? I don't know if you can really tell us what you're up to next, or or, or give us a hint. Um. I should imagine more than likely go pro, but just taking it easy now, considering the options. But I, don't be surprised if I go pro. Good man, Paul. Interesting, interesting. So we'll watch that space anyway. Well, thanks very much. Thanks very much for joining us, uh, both of you. Uh, it's been, as I said, it's been an absolute pleasure. And we'll do this again at some point, definitely, because when the, well, we thought the Olympics would have would have been and gone by now. Um uh, that's a bit of a shame actually isn't it because I mean I don't know how long ago this decision was made um, when you were going to you know move on but uh, you probably thought that you were going to get another Olympics in um, in Tokyo I mean the, the last few months have been, must have been they've been extremely odd for everybody of course but but for Olympic athletes I was at that qualifier in London and it was a really weird experience the European qualifier at the Copper Box back in March because it came just as things started to get really serious I watched the first couple of days. I saw Galaulio Fai qualify. I saw Peter McGrell qualify. And we were all kind of sitting around thinking, oh, we might get through this. Everybody's already here. It might happen. And then you just realised it wasn't going to happen. And 
four years work and people are on the brink and they've got to wait even longer now. I mean, that, yeah, I, I don't know how they, um, how did you try and help them get their heads around that? I mean, that's that's a new challenge. Yeah, I think that the pressure is off like Peter and Gamal, uh, Gamal now. But it's it's just another added pressure to the lads who haven't qualified yet. And it's it's just something they got to deal with. That this is some precedented in any sports, let alone amateur boxing. But it's just a question of one more year. So they've got tournaments that are going to take place between now and Tokyo and now and the qualifier. So that, that most of them are just, they're, they're strong mentally and they'll just adapt and get on with it now and just get into these other tournaments and use them as stepping stones for the qualifier and then the Olympics, hopefully. Are you are you a bit worried about the uh, about the amateur clubs, about the ABCs? Because, I mean, it looked like we might be moving back towards something approaching normality and now we're, we're not again and they were able to reopen and now, according to what I'm reading, although it seems to change most days, maybe they will have to close again. And that, for the grassroots of the sport, that's a real concern because some kids who were, they might not come back. You know, it's as simple as that. They might not come back. Yeah, it's insane. And I was talking to a coach this morning about it. I think the way I interpret it is that the under-18s are allowed to attend the the gyms, but attending the gym and not having competition, it's a bit, mm. you know, what if they got to work too? Coming to the gym and training is great, it's one thing. that That's okay if you keep fit and a boxer size, but the kids have got to have a co- competition as well and there's no competition. And the same for all sports, I, I should imagine, is that there's no competition what's the point in training and that we might lose a, a generation, well, not a generation, but an awful lot of kids to the sport and sport in general, if this carries on. It is. I mean, it's a real, it's a real, it's a real worry. Um, I, I, I usually do this, by the way. It's my kind of, um, it's my kind of MO to say that I'm going to finish and then think of something else and we keep going for a bit. But uh, I can't go. I really can't go. It's very rude. It's very rude. It'd be very rude to wrap this up without asking Stephen. Stephen, what's what's what, what what's up with you at the minute? Um, boxing yeah, no, wise, I'm in the it... same boat as everyone else. The minute I just think everyone's waiting for things to get back to normal, and you know, at the minute we myself, my brothers in the same boat, all just like not knowing what's happening. To be honest with you, so what are you I can't, Yeah, I can't. I can't sit and moan it like anyone else. You know what I mean? It's just everyone's in the same boat, so. I think we all just need things to get back to normal, really, and then know what know what's happening with 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 boxing as well as any other sport. It's just it's a nightmare at the minute. At bad times. See, we see how we swerved that question about the white hand, though. Yeah, <laughs> tended not to hear you. That now, Matt. Always on his way. What brown the paws, aren't I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you're. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, but you're, I mean, you've, you've got plenty to keep you occupied because um, there was a, another addition to the family, was there not? Recently? Yeah, well, uh, our family's constantly grown, isn't it? But uh, so Liam, Liam had a little girl in April and uh, I, my wife's pregnant again now, so I've got another one on, on the way myself. So that's to get you constantly growing. Yeah, that'll be it. 
So Team Smith's growing again, so uh, <laughs> we just got to <laughs> keep it going. <laughs> All right, okay. Um, and there we shall leave it. There we shall leave it. So thanks very much. Thanks very much. Um, we will be back later in the week with another bonus episode. I'm not sure exactly what that's going to be yet. And uh, me and Matt will have a chat and see what we're going to come up with over the next few weeks. But uh, keep, keep tuning in, everybody, and keep giving us um, the feedback. Uh, it's always interesting. And if you get a chance to give us a, a rate and a review on, on iTunes, then that's always good news. And we'll catch you again next time. Podcast Network.